Hi, everybody. I'm Tim Lockie. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Why It Matters. I'm joined by my stalwart companion, Tracy Kronzak. Hey, everybody. Tracy Kronzak, Director of Innovation at Now It Matters. Pleased to be stalwart today. Always a donkey. Seldom an ass. <laughs> I'm, sure. I'm not sure that's even true, but I really like that, and I may send you a mug with that written on it. <laughs> We are joined today by our friend Sam Fanchukin. Uh, <laughs> Sam Fanchukin. Yeah. It's not oh my gosh. <laughs> I broke Tim on the intro. Yeah. Totally me on the intro. Okay. Uh, We're joined today by our friend Sam Fanchukin from Golden. Um, and Sam, we're going to let you introduce yourself and your company. Sure, it's a pleasure to be here with you guys. Thank you for having me and really looking forward to the conversation today. I'm the founder and CEO of Golden, which some folks listening to this podcast may know because we're the most popular app in the world for volunteering on iOS and Android. And then we also have a cross-platform web app that is very often branded by national and, and global entities. But in addition to that, we also support the most award-winning software in the world for managing any kind of volunteer constituent-based program, online, offline, mentoring, mutual aid, really disaster relief, in-field service, board service, all across the spectrum. And that includes recruiting, scheduling, qualifying, tracking, reporting on, re-engaging, um, converting to donors or volunteer population. And we do that within our own ecosystem and in whatever other ecosystems our clients have in place, such as Salesforce, Microsoft, Blackbot, Kindful, Nation Builder, et cetera. And so uh, kind of where we fit in is in presenting service as something that's appealing and then automating and tracking information in a way that you can see it in real time and have trustworthy data. And then so that your other systems can be functioning based off of real data in real time rather than whatever somebody got around to putting into them. And that allows you to develop a much closer relationship with your constituents, regardless of how you want to engage them. You'll just have a more realistic understanding of who they are and how they engage with you. And then you can help them stay on course to fulfill whatever goals they had in mind when they first discovered you and, and started to support you. So it's a real pleasure to be here. I'm uh, really excited for where this conversation could go. And I'll turn it back to you guys. Yeah, thanks, Sam. I, I'm, I've heard you um, give that intro a couple of times. And something I just want to note that I find really interesting is at the outset, you say you're the, you know, in the world and most awarded. That is not done a lot in this ecosystem. And I, I think that's, I think it's interesting that that is the way that you present your company, I think is positive because I think that there's a tendency in this ecosystem to downplay your achievements, uh, which I'm not sure is that helpful. And it's something I've personally had to learn to combat. Is that natural to you? Does that come from your background? Where did you learn it, to do that? That's an interesting question. I have a feeling we're going with it, but I'm gonna answer it in a slightly different way. Um, I think it's important to say one, I guess there's an undertone of like in the nonprofit sector specifically distinctions, achievements, grants, uh, alignments, sponsorships, 
those kinds of things have a bit of a history. So I guess in that way, it's something that could appeal to, to some of these audiences. But really, I say it coming from the perspective of an entrepreneur and an idealistic entrepreneur um, in the social sector. So in other words, when you're starting a social enterprise, you have all of the odds against you that you would have starting a nonprofit or starting a business. Basically, you're creating something from scratch that other people don't know about and the odds are against you and people don't know what they can't see or haven't seen before. And so if you have a vision that's different than somebody else's impressions from the onset as an entrepreneur, you have to explain that reality and help people understand where you're going with your venture. And in the early days of us starting this company, and this is my second social enterprise in the field of, of nonprofit technology, specifically around volunteer management, and in between, I've had an, uh, you know, an interesting career in technology separate from that. And in the course of the time that we've been around, there've been two or 300 other folks who say that they do volunteer management. And so a big challenge we have to come up against isn't just helping people imagine what we see, it's helping them unimagine what they believe is the state of affairs or the state of the art when it comes to volunteer management technology, which is to say, even though there were so many players out there, we thought fundamental assumptions they were making about how to reach, engage, and retain constituents were off from what the natural pattern should be. They were so far off that we felt like we should enter the market and present a totally different approach. And fortunately for us, that approach has been well-received, not just by our users, but by thought leaders in all the different sectors that depend on volunteers, which means nonprofits, corporations, governments, healthcare institutions, uh, you know, many, many other sectors. And we've been fortunate enough to receive uh, endorsements from very high profile stakeholders in each of those categories. So I'll lay it on thick a little bit just for context. And normally I, I wouldn't have done this, but Tim, because you egged me on with your question. Um, there's a difference when, when you get an honor between an honor that comes from somebody who is just in a position to publish something and, and chose to say something nice versus people whose job it is to distinguish or to separate the wheat from the chaff and to offer guidance from a thought leadership perspective from people who trust their point of view. And when I say we're most awarded, we don't just you know, have a number of distinctions that we've been lucky enough to get. We've somehow been able to attain the confidence of people who are very guarded in their ability to, um, to endorse third parties, especially social ventures. So Facebook uh, named us Global Social Good App of the Year. Fast Company has named us a world-changing idea twice. Um, Apple named us Top Way to Serve Your Community. Let's see, what else? We've gotten Webby honorations, um, number one apps in the iOS and Android stores for service volunteering. Um, we're the only private sector firm ever to testify for the National Commission on Military, National and Public Service on the future of civic engagement in the United States. Most recently, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and IDEO named us the winner of their global challenge to reimagine the future of giving and many others. And there certainly are not any other entities out there um, who've been fortunate enough to win a few of these distinctions, let alone um, a battery of them. And I bring it up because sometimes we get asked, you know, how is what you're doing different than what other people have done before or what we've been doing historically or how is this different than a spreadsheet? 
classical things that people ask in the worlds of CRMs and stuff like, okay, how's, how's this functionality different than whatever I've been doing? And sometimes we need to justify that our position or an innovative position isn't just a good idea. It's that the future of this landscape is changing significantly. And now there's a more accessible way to have the best in class um, support for your program. So I often say that just to shorthand, a whole long conversation about why things haven't been working as well as they could have been working historically. I, yeah, I'm, I really like that answer. And I think it presses on two things that nonprofits have historically ignored. One is the importance of confidence in your achievements and saying, we are differentiated because we excel at this thing and actually saying that not, not just to funders, but actually just as an introduction. Um, so I think that level of confidence is one. And then there, there's an important conversation that I think has just been left out of the social sector, um, which is the nature of competition and collaboration. And so we talk at why it matters a lot about there being two rooms in the impact economy, one where you collaborate and another where you compete. And I think that you're such a good example of a way to do both of those things with a high amount of confidence and really strong language around both. Um, so uh, thanks for letting me just launch right into kind of a, a weird place, but, um, but something that I noticed I think is, is worth calling out. And, um, and thanks for doing the work on saying, you know, first, thanks for doing the work on creating an app that's achieved that, but secondly, demonstrating, here's what it looks like to say, here's what we've achieved. Uh, I just think that that's a powerful message. That's a very um, thoughtful compliment. Thank you for that. And you've clearly thought about all this stuff to a significant degree. So I'm excited to hear some of your guys' thoughts on that as well. And I will say, prior to joining, some of the background context you've given me for this call is to talk a little bit about um, you know, our point of view of, of innovation in this space and excited to get into that. One idea that just came to mind is, as you were saying what you're saying is, it's very easy as a technology person to say, okay, well, like it's innovative because this is gonna make your life a little easier or the software is like intuitive or easier to use than what you have. And that certainly should be the goal. I mean, none of us wanna be introducing things that are harder to use than whatever you were using before. Um, but change management and helping not just communicate how a piece of software that you're using to enter information or, or access certain controls is easier to use, but understanding you know, what the downstream effects of our implementing, of, of, <laughs> of implementing something like that is, is really important. You know, are you, how many people are gonna be touching this? What are you gonna to have to communicate to them? How are you gonna to have to train them and support them? But more importantly than that, are you incurring technical debt from your old systems or the new systems that you're implementing and where all this information is going? Just because something is easier to use to put information in, doesn't mean that it's easier on the organization at the end when you're trying to do something with the outputs of that information. And it's a classical CRM issue um, of garbage in, garbage out. And when we're thinking about innovation in general, 
Um, we want to be thinking about the system as a whole and how to create something that's easier to maintain over time, more powerful in its recommendations over time, um, and ultimately something that moves the organization in the right direction. There's some ease of use that's at the surface level, and there's some that's way deeper. And one of the things I'm very excited to dig into um, with you guys is how does innovation come up in a way um, that makes it so much easier to gain forward momentum. And that often means, you know, what can you do with what you have? What can you layer onto it that makes it better? Or what can you do that would make it easier to build in the future rather than a competitive mindset? Like you were saying, Tim, where it's like, you know, it's, it's them or me, you know, one of us is going to get a contract. How am I going to get them to unwind this other contract and spin up a contract with us? When you think about doing that, um, in many cases, if, if you're the person in that conversation arguing for your firm, then you're going to be unwinding a lot of work and introducing a lot of change management. Instead, if you can understand if there's a, a method to the madness that's pre-existing your presence and there's a way to clean or enrich or enhance what's in place, then that actually ends up being a lot more helpful for the client. Um, and then eventually, if, if they want to upgrade certain other parts of the infrastructure over time, you can do it. But trying to find ways to avoid doing a hard switch, trying to find ways to enhance the value proposition of other partners in the space is ultimately in all of our best interests because we want these clients, these organizations to be improving the state of the world as quickly as possible. And the more bandwidth we consume with migrating systems or deprecating systems or learning new systems, training people on them, deploying them um, is just dead weight loss in economic terms. It's just to suck on the total output of the sector. So I think all of us, it's not just like a client services thing. It's sort of, it's a deep ethical question that we need to come to terms with, which is, you know, are, are you in business for a slight marginal increase in your revenue? Or are you in business to help update the way that the world is functioning. So we would like to try and strive for the latter in the early days. Sometimes that meant fighting tooth and nail for contracts. And then pretty soon we realized that we were actually fortunately in a position to provide value in ways other people in the sector hadn't. And once we found that little niche, then we could start accelerating the value the existing players had. And that allowed us to earn a lot of really cool partnerships. Well, Sam, there's a lot to unpick in everything that you just talked about. I think the question that comes most immediately to mind for me is, you know, one of the things that we think about a lot here at Now It Matters is technology, the the tech stack and the human stack, right, is how we talk about it, right? And so the question I have is like, what happens when the system is not something that's an aggregate inefficiency driven by technology, right? And what, I, what I'm driving at here is the notion that, you know, you had said earlier, you know, we want to make things easier and more streamlined. And I think you're touching on something that is really important to me in, in my own work in this world. And that is, let's stop looking at an ecosystem like the nonprofit ecosystem, what I call the impact economy as a series of one-off wins 
for business partners, platforms, software applications, you name it, and start looking at it from the lens of aggregate inefficiencies that technology, when thoughtfully applied, can solve, that always resides in the context of humans. And unfortunately, the human journey is not a rapid or efficient one, right? So, you know, it's kind of like looking at your best friend saying like, man, what would really help you is if you did some therapy and sobered up. <laughs> and in some ways, like you kind of have to also solve for those inefficiencies at the human level. How do you communicate about that when you're both trying to accelerate technology change, but also provide a stronger backbone for human change around that technology? I will give you an example that's very far afield, if that's okay. Go for it. So in between the times that I was working on these two separate social ventures in the field of social impact, one job that I had um, began as just a general management rotational program member and evolved into leading a corporate transformation effort for one of the largest transportation companies in the world. So after graduate school, that's what I went and did because it was 2009. It was a really rough economy to be raising money for a social venture. And I wanted to take the opportunity to learn how to operate from people whose business ventures I admired from a distance. So I went into this company and the company had a lot of holdings in car dealerships. And they said, um, car dealerships get a bad name. We want to offer, and we do offer a much better type of service than most of the other folks in our field offer. But people come in here uh, a little bit guarded because they feel like somebody's going to take advantage of them and that the process isn't going to be clean or give them the value that they came here to get. And so the challenge was, how do you reinvent? And you know, now, obviously, there's a whole slew of people who've been reinventing the experience of buying or having cards, you know, trading them in, and, you know, swapping leases and all the other parts of the ecosystem. But 2009, that wasn't really the case. I mean, there were websites for car dealerships and that was pretty much it. So the challenge was, how do you give somebody a best-in-class consumer experience um, in, in a car dealership? leveraging infrastructure that, that we put in place. So for further context and why pro, a part of probably, I've never thought about this, but vocalizing it now, it occurs to me, part of the reason why I care so much about preserving this infrastructure is, is lessons I learned in that setting. So for most towns in America, the biggest sales tax base is car dealerships. That's the biggest value transaction and um, you know, there's a high volume of those transactions. And so for local economies, historically, it's been really important that they exist. I mean, car purchases, for most people, second biggest purchase they make behind home. They trust them, you know, their, their lives and their family to these machines every day. And it's scary if you get like a big repair that you couldn't predict, or you, know, you bought something that was just the wrong fit for your family. Like these are significant purchasing decisions for the consumer. And the infrastructure of these car dealerships to adequately support lifestyle changes for people and big purchases for people, it's considerable. So if you went to a totally virtual environment of car buying with no car dealerships, obviously you would lose a lot of jobs and you'd, you'd lose a lot of tax revenue, but there's also like a very human element of being able to go into a car dealership and have them figure out what's wrong with your tire instead of just 
calling up an app and hoping that a delivery driver from the app is going to be able to like pick up your car wherever it broke down. Um, you know, you don't want to rely on that as like the only defense mechanism. So, you know, to, to provide a much more modern car buying experience, you want to have an interface that feels intuitive, um, whether that's in person or online or through any digital touch point. And you want to be able to leverage the infrastructure of somebody who has built a trusted um, business and has, you know, a good number of support staff on hand uh, as a back end to that. Very similar to, you know, cutting edge, bleeding edge technologies today and what systems they may have behind them to power them. And even if, you know, those systems are more modern CRMs, um, there's still going to be some back office operations. There's still going to be, you know, financial systems and so forth um, that are a little tricky. And if you want these organizations to be able to deploy their resources effectively in the field, you need to be understanding that there are going to be some, some touch points there and, and you want to be collaborative. Um, but to your point, question is, how do you deal with change management and behavioral change, I guess, the human stack? And the reason why I brought up the example of these car dealerships is because if you, if you think it's hard to work in a technology organization or even a nonprofit where people are centrally positioned around a mission, or at least on some level they are, imagine working in a car dealership where the incentive structure is more transactions, more gross revenue, uh, or you know, gross profit at the end of each uh, transaction, more revenue for the, the entity. Like that, that's the alignment, it's classic private sector. Um, alignment. And what you have to think about in, in the world of helping transform car dealerships is how you can help um, people who are buying cars buy the right car like over their lifetime, how you can help people who are selling cars build a clientele that's going to support them over their lifetime, how you can help the car dealership understand how to increase lifetime value and network effects of activating really, um, you know, customers who, who believe in transacting with them and getting their networks of, of family members and friends to buy from them and so forth. And the challenge there was saying, okay, we're gonna use these technologies to make your life easier, regardless of which of these stakeholders you are. If you're a buyer, it's so that you have more transparency and more speed, more trust. If you are a seller, like a car salesperson, so that you can understand your contacts needs, give them the right inventory, build for them the right deal so that they trust you enough to buy their next car in three years and get their clients to. And for the, you know, the company owning these car dealerships, it's providing an experience that feels much more like the Apple store than it does like going to the swap meet. And um, so when you, when you kind of get those incentives aligned, then it becomes a lot easier to sort of say, okay, if that's the goal, then here are the technologies we can use to sort of iron out these parts of the process toward that goal. But you got to make sure that people are focused on a goal that's bigger than who they are so that they're interested to experiment with these other technologies. And, and that's kind of the case in the nonprofit sector. The bigger goal, obviously, is to help work on the mission, but it's to provide a differentiated experience from other organizations that seem similar because you've got more focus, you've got more attunement. Um, you're more respectful of who the participant is, whether they're a volunteer or donor or advocate of any kind, and providing interfaces for them that reflect your prioritization of the bigger picture rather than the transaction. So I hope nobody's offended by me comparing um, professional advancement officers and fundraising officers and volunteer coordinators to car salesmen, but there's something very humbling of putting yourself in a position like a car salesman or 
car saleswoman, car salesperson, where at the end of the day, like somebody's there to do something, like how can you facilitate it? It's just an interesting analog. And it's one that I can speak to from experience. Well, what's really interesting, Sam, is, I mean, Tim and I were having this conversation literally the other day. And, you know, we were talking about the role of affirmation in change management, which you've also touched on now too, because I mean, you talked about car dealerships. I, I have to say, I don't find them terribly affirming, but when executed well, they at least get us a new vehicle, right? right. Um, but, you know, you also brought up the Apple Store experience. And I think that is both a system of expectations management, but it's also a system of affirmation. And I have occasionally forgotten that, you know, in that human stack, we need to remember that there are other human beings whose lives need affirming and that there has to be a positivity towards it. And that positivity isn't just, we're going to change up your job and make it a better job. That positivity is connected to that bigger world. Um, Cause I have to say, I, I barely interact with the Apple store, but when I do go, it is one of those places where I feel like the center of the universe simply by walking in, <laughs> you know, I'm like, Oh, you know, I haven't even thought about that, but sure. Show me that thing or, or press that button over there and make that light turn pink or, or something, you know, like, because it's so affirmational, even though I know that every time I walk into the Apple store, I'm usually on the hook for about a hundred to $500 worth of charges. Right. You know? Yeah. That perspective of um, this is the, uh, and what I like about that example is the connection between societal needs, individual needs of the car dealership and local needs of both experience and a service um, or product. And one that is both expensive and potentially life-threatening or saving depending on which one you get, right? So that I think that is an interesting example in the way it zooms very high level and also all the way down to very personal interest. And it reminds me of something my friend Liz Moore, Liz is the executive director of Montana Nonprofit Association, an amazing person, a really great speaker, one of the only people I've ever met who can truly connect public policy with actual real things. Uh, and so I love listening to her speak. And uh, she was telling me a couple of weeks ago, she was at a, an economic forum speaking. And she said, um, she said nonprofits are the fabric of society. And um, fabric is something that you most notice when you're in public without it. <laughs> I just think that is so true of what you're talking about in terms yeah. of what happens at the infrastructure layer that, you know, a program manager may not, you know, a program manager in the moment is thinking about how do I, how do I connect this volunteer mentor to this student who, you know, is cutting class and just needs an older adult to process some of those questions out with, that's on their mind. And yet at the same time, 
that zooms out to local economy and you know uh, national and global implications. Uh, and so I'm I'm glad you're connecting that on multiple layers there and driving the economics of that. I and I did I had no idea about local tax implications of car dealerships. That is really yeah, interesting. I, I, yeah, that's new information to me too. That's yeah, it's, it's important to think about. I mean, it, to your, you know, your image of fabric, that's, that's what this is. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's easy for us to say, let's automate out uh, car dealerships and development officers. You know, let's have everything be fully automated. But, you know, there's, there is a fabric. And in the case of car dealerships, that fabric is payroll tax, sales tax, having establishments that employ people and enrich an economy of a local area. And it could be for any, any number of other retail too. Like it's, it's just an example. In the nonprofit sector, it's about having the continuity of the stakeholders with the organization through the development officers to understand how to focus potential resources toward a goal. And if, you, if we're gonna go deeper in, in economics and sort of like comparing um, these two worlds, when you're selling cars, it's one thing if you're a car salesperson and you know you're trying to hit your number the same way if you're a development officer at a university and you're trying to you know hit your number or whatever for for raising money. But at the institutional level, car dealerships don't make their money from selling new cars. There's a lot of transparency about what cars cost. The money is made on financing, on service contracts, on upselling value-added options, and getting trade-in vehicles and a lot of other ancillary things. Same way when you're yep. looking at donor or constituent lifetime value, it's not just from one big gift, although there certainly are demographic things, you know, end of life gifts and stuff like that that are big gifts. But if you really want to build a healthy fabric in the organization and the nonprofit sector, it's about providing a place where people go when they want to advance the mission and they feel like there are a lot of different channels for them to do that. They should have access to be able to volunteer in a number of ways as the front door. They should have the option to donate to things where they can understand what the outcome of, of that donation is going to be. They should be able to advocate on behalf of your mission and, and the initiatives that you're trying to prioritize. And when you do that, you get a lot richer lifetime value from the participant and you get a much richer access to their network and you get a more authentic sense of identity and you are more relevant. Um, same way, if you're going to the Apple store, you might need a new laptop, but you'll check out the headphones or you'll check out you know, a mouse pad or whatever, whatever it is they're, they're going to show you there. And I, I literally oh, just right. bought like what I described as a passel of AirTags for an upcoming vacation. I was like, all right, we'll try these out. Yeah. Um, God, Let's there's flip so much fire up this $1,500 Hermes AirTag. It's definitely exactly. I, I just paid $45 for a piece of leather. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, there's so much I want to unpick in everything you said. I mean, to 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 I want to pivot to volunteering a little bit because you brought up that journey of personalization. I will say you're spot on right about car stuff. Um, it's the monies and all the other things. And it's why that experience is so important from the time that you walk in the door, because you could just as easily press a button and buy a car and every dealership knows that now. Right. Um, right. It's funny. My wife and I took advantage of that in a lot of ways because 
what we know to be true is we have a plan that we bought a truck. Like if you think about that truck as a metaphor for how people address technology, right? We can only get one truck, but I have different requirements than she did, right? So I was like, can I hammer this thing down to 70 in under eight seconds? Yes. Can I turn up the radio to the point where it's deafening and install a subwoofer? Yes, I'm happy. My eight cylinder Sequoia is perfect. And she was like, well, we need a DVD thing for the kids and safety and captain's chairs and all this. And I was like, oh yeah, that stuff's important too, right? Like that's the process of compromise. And then we allowed them to upsell us because we were like, we're gonna pay this thing off in a year based on our financial plan. And you think you're making a ton of money off of us you know, but you're not because we're we're gonna let you do all the upselling and pay it off before that financing has a chance to return on your everything, right? Um, my point being that every personal experience offers the opportunity for upselling. And I think that is the dovetail to volunteering. And the the question I asked you before we hit recording is kind of important to me because I have been in the nonprofit world long enough to remember when volunteering was a very individual activity, right? In the nineties, we had to go out and hunt for volunteers. We had to make it an experience for them personally. And the volunteers found our organizations through the notion that they believed in our mission enough to do free work for us so that the paid staff could, you know, actually execute on it. Right. I am going to use a phrase that you're free to pick apart, but I feel like (laughs) corporatization of volunteering has changed that relationship. And, and, and by the way, this isn't the only sort of like type of phrase like that I use. I refer sometimes to employee resource groups as the privatization of activism uh, because it's taking it in house for companies. But in a lot of ways, companies are the stewards now of these giant passels of people who just come. And I see why it works, like Google, Salesforce, whomever gets to say our staff does a lot of volunteering. They frequently incentivize it internally and nonprofits frequently get a lot of work done you know, by highly motivated people, but no longer people who are necessarily personally connected to their mission, right? Like yeah. I food banks aren't my things, but I volunteered for three of them in my last corporate job because I was like, okay, that's what we're doing today. Great, I'll sort apples. Um, how do you change that personal journey? And, and what are your observations on how volunteering has changed for nonprofits? I mean, good things, bad things, you know, because I was always told your volunteers will be your future donors and that maybe no longer is true. Well, it definitely, there's an argument to be made of why it's still true. So we may come back to that, but before we do- Oh, do, no, please. Because I, I want to make do. sure it is still true is my point. Let's, let's um, define corporatization of volunteering. Do you mean the advent of corporations selling, sending like big swaths of their employees or do you mean- standardization of volunteer programs or do you mean just like professionalism or just like more? No, I actually mean the first because somewhere along the way, giant companies stumbled on the idea that it's a good thing for PR. Sometimes it excuses bad behavior and it also doesn't 
cost them a lot of money because what they're not doing is giving their own money and their own product in some cases, right? Well, but you know, not, I, I can I wrangle 400 people to, to sort their apples. I have know? so much to say on all these subjects. And um, I, you know, normally you're, you guys are gonna have to forgive me. I've got some learning disability. So I may, I may answer these things out of order or drop the ball, but it doesn't mean that anything- it's okay. Tim and I are really good awesome. at tracking nonlinear stuff. Okay, so before we do that, I'm just gonna throw out a few bullets of things that I think might be interesting to dig into. Not necessarily comprehensive, but there's like a broad spectrum of different ways we can approach all this. So off the top of my head, I'm going to bullet out a few of these and then you guys get to pick maybe where we spend our time rather than me rambling. How does that sound? I love it. Go for okay. it. So one is, um, uh, you know, what role should volunteering serve for the organization in general? Another is um, how has corporate volunteering become more of a thing? Another is, um, what are the formats of volunteer opportunities that are most helpful to engage people in? Another is the, the most recent point, what is the future of, um, sorry, let me recollect this, uh, the, the thing we just left on. Um, uh, okay, volunteers and Volunteering donors. and PR. Volunteering and PR. Let's talk about, you know, corporations and ESG. Let's talk about how... CSR departments were formed historically and what the future of them are. We should talk about the role of skills-based volunteering separately from all this other stuff. And we should talk about effective days of service versus classical big days of service, like jam hundred people from the engineering department into the soup kitchen kind of thing. Um, there's all of these topics and more are interrelated. Um, I, I could start from the top. Um, philosophically, or we could go talk specifically to the corporate use case. Um, it, it's really up to you. Corporate use case. Yeah, I okay. was going to say go corporate use case because it'll back into philosophy. Yeah. All right. To so talk about corporate use case, it's easiest to talk about you know what is being asked from corporations to nonprofits today. And how did we arrive at that? And then maybe what is a more ideal future state than today's current state, which I would say is suboptimal. So um, what we're talking about specifically is companies feel that they have a lot of influence in places where they operate and they want to be recognized for having some kind of social impact as a, is related to their companies. And the easiest way they can think of to do that is to call up a nonprofit or an intermediary and say, please take our people to go do something on behalf of our company and take a lot of them at the same time. And if we need to pay for it, we'll pay for it as a service. Um, that is not all of corporate volunteering, but there's certainly a strong um, thread of many large scale companies doing service this way and it's suboptimal. And, it's suboptimal in ways that maybe listeners of this podcast will understand for the operator of the program for the nonprofit, because yep. you get a phone call from Google and I don't mean to single Google out. It could be any company, but we'll say Google because it's a company all of us know. Um, if you get a phone call from Google, um, you're going to try and find a way to work with Google, but they're going to say, we have 500 people and we want them to come and volunteer with you can you set something up? 
And as a nonprofit, your normal operations are not set up to accommodate huge lumps and spikes of people that don't have any context for what they're doing um, for a short period of time where you're gonna have to train them and then the value you're gonna extract is not gonna recoup the sunk cost of training them and you're not gonna be able to get them back because you don't have a separate event set up in the future or you don't know if the policies are gonna change in the company or people are gonna move or there's a pandemic or whatever. And then you try and recoup that Delta between That's right. what you That's right. asking for some kind of donation, but the donation policy may not be in lockstep with the volunteering policy. And um, so you have to make decisions um, based on what you think is going to happen. And sometimes it's, it's favorable and sometimes it's um, disruptive. Uh, obviously, I think if everybody took a step back, we wouldn't want to be burdening a nonprofit that way. But companies also feel like they need to kind of make a splash. And part of the reason why there is that influence is because the advent of corporate social responsibility as a department is relatively recent. I would say in the last five to 10 years, it became something people thought about. And in the last three years, it's been something that every big company needs to have. And in a perfect world, in the future state, um, what ESG or you know, environmental sustainability goals should look like. Um, and there are a lot of big thinkers, like at the level of companies that kind of set out to do this from scratch and at the level of people who buy companies and take them public, thinking about what's going to make a certain company more competitive in a public market. Um, big private equity shops, for example, I think Larry Fink comes to mind as somebody who's been really trying to get people to rally around um, you know, true alignment of the organization in the outside world. The future state should be, regardless of what kind of company you are, and even the ones who historically have done a lot of greenwashing, like let's say energy companies, like oil and gas companies, or you know, yep. pharma companies. The world needs energy companies, and we need big pharma companies to do R and D on, on drugs. Like, yes, there are negative externalities of these companies, but we simply need to have uh, a holistic economy that's functional. And we do have some dependencies on enterprises like these and every other enterprise. And in my view, every organization should be thinking, what is the version of our entity that the world you know, would like us to be? What is the version of ourselves that really moves the world forward? Or you know, we're operating with a sensibility that puts uh, you know, other people's considerations um, into the forefront of our decision-making and makes them our stakeholders. And there's an authenticity with that kind of alignment. And the public is smart enough to make a decision like they're doing what they can or they're making responsible choices versus they just sent a bunch of people to a soup kitchen, but they're an energy company. And like, to me, like that's just a gesture. I don't understand how the company is making responsible decisions. Yep. And so the way you would execute on that future state is to say, who are all of our stakeholders? You know, our shareholders, our employees, our vendors, our supply chain, the communities where we operate, the partners who we work with, the governments we support, like every stakeholder, who are the stakeholders and what could a good version of this kind of company do to improve quality of life for those people? And how can we holistically make choices to do that? And they would start doing it. But unfortunately, um, where we are today is in an in-between state 
um, which is companies are very concerned about marketing temples saying like, these are things we did. This is the top line metric we hit. And the yep. reason for that is the folks who found their way into these CSR departments very seldom come from a background of understanding the holistic nature of the company or understanding the ecosystems where the company operates and they have seasoned expertise and relationships and a vision and strategy. Usually what happens is you rotate people into the CSR team from PR or comms or HR. Or worse, sales. Or anywhere. I mean, yeah. frankly, somewhere in the company. Um, and you know, they, their job is to publish a quarterly or an annual report with some impressive numbers in it. And they're very concerned about um, you know, just protecting their ability to do that. They're less concerned about what can we do that's gonna change our community. I think we'll get to that place, but you know, right now everybody's very protectionist and it's meant that they're not looking for innovation and they're not thinking not just about the format of an opportunity they can have with a nonprofit, but in general, they're not trying to push the boundaries of what's expected of them. I don't think that will happen until corporations at the board level aren't just inclusive, but have people whose job it is to, uh, to be a decision-making voice about the company reaching its potential and being more competitive than other companies in its space because it's more dedicated to you know, the segment of humanity that they're serving. That will happen. Um, it's already starting to happen, but you know, the way we see CSR departments existing, I think in 10 years, the boards of every enterprise scale company are going to have among them people whose job it is to make sure that the company is not misstepping. In the short term, how that affects volunteering is, I think it, it, before we talk about what corporate volunteering should look like in the different formats, I think we should go back and look at philosophy of operating a nonprofit and how you should think about what your volunteer program is. And then we'll come back to corporations. So I would challenge, I'm gonna throw down a challenge for everybody who's listening to this program. If you still think of volunteers as envelope stuffers, um, you know, like Tracy was saying earlier. Yeah, um, which was I'm, where it began. I, I wanna challenge everybody who holds that belief today to discard it. The way you should think about your volunteer program is the way you should think about in your own home, things that you use or don't use or you need getting done, posting ads for them on Craigslist or offer up or whatever services you're using and having a yard sale or calling all the service providers you need in to take care of business for you. You should be running, writing a list and keeping a running list of things you need done, um, activities that are stalled, um, extra, you know, whatever it is, extra hands on everything. And regardless of how mundane or boring you may think it is, like stuffing envelopes, if you think that's mundane and boring, although there's so many people who really just want to stuff envelopes or really just want to do yard work because they spend all day at a desk doing accounting. Um, whatever it is that you have, I would challenge you to define those things and to publish those things so that you can mm -hmm. get folks coming into specific areas that you already know what needs getting done and you can direct them. And hopefully as long as what you're asking them to do meets their expectations, they'll want to come back or they'll trust you or they'll want to do other things. That's the way you should think about it. And when you are very good at turning your needs into live inventory, what the need is, how many people you need, when you need them, 
whether it's in-person, virtual, on your own time, board service, mentoring, disaster relief, um, does not matter, skills-based work. Um, you should be very, um, very on top of doing that. That makes it a lot easier for you to turn around to a company and say, we have so many options for you. Like I know you say you want to deposit people on Saturday or four, uh, you know, 4.30 on Tuesday or whatever to do this stuff. And we, we have some slots for that. But in a world where corporations now have hybrid workforces where people are working from home or some days or going to the office some days or they're doing more field-based work, um, they're more flexible anyway. And so the companies, if you come to them with options, will be much more astute about placing their volunteers into those options. And um, it, it, it becomes a lot easier to kind of break down those big chunks. And more importantly, the more of these genuine interactions you have with the employees at the company, the more you'll be able to engage them over time, the more you'll have them invested and in wanting to donate, and the more you'll have them advocating with their company to have a tighter relationship with you. Skills-based volunteering is a totally separate category. Um, pretty much, you know, most organizations have some needs where they could benefit from having a designer or an accountant or a lawyer, or, you know, any, any number of these other folks. And I think there's some specialist firms that do this, like, you know, Taproot um, or Unite Way sometimes will run skills-based programs. Um, we offer in Bolden skills-based positions as long, as long as the organization is listing them. And that's a more sustained and specific pattern that you're typically going to recruit for from corporations, but you could from the general market. And the other thing that I think is going to change in corporate volunteering that, that folks are going to catch up to isn't just having but also having top-down CSR um, organization of activities. So the three different formats of corporate volunteering that we see um, pretty often. One is corporation says, today is our soup kitchen day and they send 500 people to soup kitchen. A second is a curation layer where that CSR person says, okay, we have a value pillar of healthy communities. And so I'm gonna go in and find a bunch of opportunities from organizers who I know are doing work in healthy communities. I'm gonna recommend these or share these with our team and they can pick and it's still aligned with our value pillar and they can go to any number of these things. And a third category is, you know, sort of bottoms up stuff, allowing individuals to find things on their own and getting credit for them or allowing stakeholders in your company to self-organize on behalf of the company. And this is more of like the informal champion person. And all of us know somebody in our lives like this, that mm. you work with, or you, you get to worship with, or whatever the case is, and they're passionate about something and they kind of round up a group and, and go and do it. And I think companies and big organizations of all kinds should have a diversified approach to allowing all of those categories of contribution. The burden is not just on the CSR person to define and, and hold everyone accountable for doing a specific thing. And it shouldn't be so loose that people just do whatever and get credit for it at the company. They should have some kind of attachment to their company, the work they're doing, and how there's a holistic benefit for the community at large as a result of these things. And to have a culture or a fabric that's that healthy, you need to be pulling threads from a bunch of different directions. Part of that is the responsibility of the company in supporting all the different classes of service that we just talked about and grant making and dollars for doers and donation matching and all that stuff. And part of it is the responsibility of the organization to say, 
there are resources out there available to your organization in the form of corporate giving and all of its in all of its kinds and general community stuff. But if you just expect people to fill out a form on your website expressing interest and you're going to call them back and then figure out what kind of volunteer opportunity to put together for them, you're not doing your organization any favors in terms of um, organizing and, and managing the program or in terms of achieving the results that you want to get out of volunteer and, and donor programs. If you really want speed to market, the fastest thing you can do is, again, challenge everybody in your organization to identify where the needs are and classify and organize those needs and get them out there so that folks can find them. Obviously, this would be a great opportunity for me to shamelessly plug Golden. So um, I, I will say, if you haven't um, taken the time to go to goldenvolunteer.com um, and just check out the different things you can get, a lot of our offerings are free. For example, if you're trying to get opportunities up there, qualify volunteers, schedule them, track them, report on what they're doing, that's all free with Golden. Whether you're a company or, or a nonprofit or any other organizer. You really only get into paid and professional services when that data needs to update other systems or you want to have a hierarchy of your chapters or your partner network. And those are all professional use cases that, that have licenses associated with them. But the reality is this challenge that we just spent you know, half an hour talking about, that's something that's free and immediate for you to fix. And it's the central driver of your ability to achieve output from people who want to support your organization. God, there's there's a layer cake here that is so rich that I know we're going to run out of time to dig into. Um, but what I want to ask you, the, the lingering doubt and fear in my mind, Sam, is, you know, first of all, thank you for your like absolute diplomacy. Uh, you will say things like folks who aren't necessarily derived from the ecosystems that, you know, the company wants to serve. And I will say something like complete morons disconnected from the world. So I do appreciate folks who can do that. Um, my question is, is my lingering doubt is the thing that's going, the tension here really is a tension between long game and short game. And the thing that I see as forever stumbling block is next quarter's goals, whatever they are, however they're defined. Um, and, and how do you get over that stumbling block? Because uh, next quarter's goals will always be more important than the goals of the quarter that's five years out. If you don't have a framework to align the immediate term to, so if you don't have a big picture in mind, it's very hard to get optimal output out of your resources to hit the current quarter goals. And it's impossible to sustain success across multiple quarters. If you have a strong quarter and there's no bigger vision, it just means that you're optimizing for just converting things at the end at all costs, which usually means damaging the nature of a relationship. And yes. so it, it's sort if of like- profit there, yes. If we're using, you know, short-term analogies, <laughs> or uh, sorry, car analogies, analogs, whatever, um, it's like, you know, if you know the goal is to exit the freeway, um, you know, you, you have to have a bigger picture that like you're going to be making exits and changing freeways and stuff. And that way people can move over on time and make effective decisions and execute in the moment. But if people are scrambling to cross from the left lane to the right lane at the last minute, it's very hard to do that. And imagine what it's like to then move all the way back over from the right lane to the left lane or whatever it is. It's just, 
it's disorganization and it's not professional. Um, so, you know, just thinking about short-term goals, starting with the nonprofit sector. Again, the challenge I threw down, that's gonna get you to your short-term goals. If you're not exposing the opportunities for engagement, donations, volunteering, advocacy, or whatever, in a format where people can quickly act, that's nobody's fault but your own for not hitting your quarterly goals. You need to itemize things and you need to distribute them so that your networks of stakeholders can convert. It's not just about you forcing somebody to convert. If you're a corporation, um, again, it's about fluidity and having a bunch of different options so that you can drive more volume more quickly um, toward a bigger goal. You know, paint a big picture for people to, to achieve, and then you will have, if that's an authentic vision, you'll have a lot more buy-in from people really trying to give to their full potential in the immediate term. And then you can do recognition and sort of plan for the next term and, and go from there. But just expecting to jam a bunch of people through or doing a big initiative with no justification for it or no compelling hook, um, that's just going to wear people down and deteriorate your culture and, and confidence that they have in your ability to be effective. Yeah, I'm so glad to hear you say the word authenticity in there. And I think um, as an economist, I'm constantly looking at, you know, where is there scarcity right now? What is you know, because where there's scarcity, there's a market. Um, and when I look at the world these days, one of the things I look at is there's a scarcity of hope and there's an increase, there's been a scarcity of authenticity. I think 2020 really challenged that. So, you know, we see we see each other's homes now. We I've seen I've seen yeah. VPs, you know, talking from their bathrooms on a Zoom call with people knocking to get in. Like, I mean, our worlds became, you know, who we are in a new way. And yeah. I think business realized like, this is fine. Like people actually have homes. And so I think those two things that you're talking about, authenticity and hope are at the center of volunteering. And so when you look at what happens in a volunteer market, you're by, just by the word volunteer, you're, always, you're already, assuming someone wants to help someone else at no charge, right? Which in economics terms is an anomaly and a miracle or you've got some fuzzy logic in there, right? So that's, that's interesting. But the other piece on that is um, that hope actually, hope is not a short-term game. Hope is a long-term. So in your traffic analogy, hope is the thing that sign, signposts two miles back that there's an exit coming up. Right. So people can align. And so I would say, Tracy, part of this is an authenticity combined with hope on where this can go. And any, if, if there's any other venture or any other motive in there, um, I mean, there will be other motives and that's fine, but it has to include those two pieces or I don't think that you can get to the end that you're looking at. Um, but I do, I, I strongly believe, and especially in, this, in the you know, impact economy, we see again and again where companies and especially non nonprofits think past the next quarter, they think past the next year, and think they're starting to think past their own brands. And I think all of that is, you know, is really helpful. Sam, I think, you know, Golden allows people to identify that quickly and create that live inventory of needs. I love the way that you're describing that. Um, but 
the the point of it is to say like just make that list now um so i mean i would say check out golden that's fine but from what you're saying i'm i assume you would say like who cares if on golden or if it's on google spreadsheets make that list yeah. and when that list becomes so hard to maintain that you need a tool golden's a great one and i like that because back to the human stack someone mm -hmm. can start mm -hmm. that while they're listening to this they can take out a pen and piece of paper and actually just start itemizing things that they need. I think that we need more solutions that get at, at, you know, get at the human layer faster. So really like what you're putting out on that. Also to my earlier comment about needing therapy and sobering up, like <laughs> list making is an important product of both of those processes. It really is. I love how that fits in because it's like, I see so many reactive moves on both sides of the equation. I've been around long enough to see highly reactive nonprofits just thinking opportunistically, but never itemizing what the opportunity is. And I've seen highly reactive companies looking just to look like they're doing something without a plan for the future. And Sam, like the big lesson that I'm really getting out of this is yeah. that you know, I've spent 15 years on a, you know, soapbox of sorts in the nonprofit ecosystem saying, if you're not elevating IT to the same status as HR, finance, and operations in your organization, you're doing it wrong. And, you know, what you're saying that's the new kind of add-on here is that if you're not elevating that long-term responsibility plan to the same level as, you know, the COO or the CIO at your organization, you're doing it wrong now. Uh, and it's connected to authenticity and hope, Tim. Which well, is, I'll give you a you know, 2020 great. authentic perspective on all this. So <laughs> I'm today, you know, obviously participating in this from the perspective of being a CEO of a technology company, which means I obviously love and adopt all kinds of different programs that organize information like CRMs that are lists or like project management tools that are lists, all this stuff's lists. But at the end of the day, you know, human stuff, I still have these lists. There's a post-it I'm holding up with things to do. And when I, you know, had summer jobs growing up and worked in restaurants, we had lists of how many pieces of salmon we have left to serve and all this stuff. It doesn't matter what role you have. If you don't have lists of what needs to get done, those things are not going to get done. And if your list includes raising money or getting more advocates, building your brand, um, whatever, and you don't have a list of ways people actionably can do that, you're not going to get it done. And, uh, you know, that's, that's as authentic a thing as I can say. It doesn't, it does not matter if you're doing QA and you're debugging one thing at a time, or if you are raising tens or hundreds or millions or billions of dollars for a company, if you don't have a set of objectives that are totally actionable, there's no way you or anybody who works with you is going to get it done. That is, that is the perfect conclusion, Sam just put the perfect bow on this episode. Thank you. Thank you so much for, uh, first, for thinking past, uh, like thinking of all of the stakeholders, thinking of volunteering, you know, out to the edges instead of just putting together another app and, and looking at some data. Um, 
And it's really, it's so transformative to talk with someone who thinks so far out um, as part of what they are, uh, part of what they're doing. So really appreciate that. And then thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. I know that your time is- it's a, it's a real pleasure. I think, um, you know, obviously your community can appreciate your broad thinking as well as your, your depth of expertise when it comes to understanding these systems. And a point I know you wanted to cover today that maybe if there's another episode to cover, we can come back and do this is, you know, what, what is the relationship between strategy consulting and where we stand with data that lives in these systems? I, I know it's something that you and I have talked about separately that you're excited to cover, but um, I think there is a wave of new strategy that can come about because of the leverage of what's stored in these systems when, when you're able to get clean, clean data in there because you have good lists and everything else. So someday when, when anyone's interested in that conversation, maybe we can revisit that. I, I love the idea of a sequel uh, cast on this because I think you're right. I think you hold, you hold some ideas that I haven't heard anybody else talk about. And um, so would love to do that part two. And um, yeah, really, really appreciate, um, yeah, really appreciate your time. Cool, yeah. thank you guys. Very much a pleasure meeting you, Sam. Thank you so much for today. You too, guys. I'm Tim Lockie. I'm Tracy Kronzak, and you've been listening to Why It Matters. Why It Matters is a thought leadership project of Now It Matters, a strategic services firm offering advising and guiding to nonprofit and social impact organizations. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe, check out our playlists, and visit us at nowitmatters.com to learn more about us.